listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. To hear the full show each day, tune in to AM550 and FM102.9 WDUN or log in to accesswdun.com and click the Listen Live button from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. It is the Martha Zoller Show. We are very happy to be here with Pastor Rod Huey. He is joining me today yes, on so a very excited. special day because we have Senator Raphael Warnock with us today. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. Great to be here. It was a long time coming, but I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. Great to be here. It is great. It is great to have you here. All right. So you're in Gainesville. First of all, tell us a little bit about why you're in Gainesville today. Well, it's great to be back in Gainesville. And uh, look, wonderful things are happening here in in the city. Uh, Later today, I'm going to be visiting uh, the hospital, uh, north, uh, uh, the uh, Gainesville Health Center. And um, I'm very focused on health care. That's been a passion of mine long before I went to the Senate. Uh, I recently uh, was able to pass, well, last summer we passed my my bill, which capped the cost of insulin uh, for folks who are on Medicare. I'm trying to get that done uh, for everybody. But I'm also very focused on the crisis of maternal health. Uh, There are entirely too many women dying uh, just trying to bring a child into the world. And Georgia is near the top of the, the list. And uh, we there was a recent study that showed that 89%, 89% of the maternal deaths in this state were preventable. Think about that. And uh, so I've got legislation on this that I uh, have introduced with Senator Rubio, and it's something I'll remain uh, focused on. Uh, our maternal uh, mortality rates are criminally high. The good news is we can do something about it. That's something government can actually fix if we'll get focused on it. You know, health care is a really important issue. And, of course, um, the ACA has been very successful in getting more people insured. But in the time that it's been in place, the costs have gone up pretty significantly. And for somebody like me, I'm a self-employed person over a certain age. I'm not Medicare age yet, but I'm almost there. You're legal though, right? I am. I am. <laughs> I'm, over six, I'm over 55. I'll be 64 in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm paying about what a mortgage payment is for my my health insurance premium because I'm self-employed and I'm, and you know, and God's been good to us. We make a pretty good salary. And so I don't qualify for any of that. I'm not saying you need to fix that because I can pay my, my health care. But I think this insulin thing is extremely important because what has happened is costs of things have still gone up more than they should. And I think that's something we need to work on. Oh, we certainly need to get uh, a handle on the cost of prescription drugs. And um, what we are seeing in, in Washington is the uh, influence, the outside voice of big pharma uh, and interest groups in our policy, and which is why I, you know, it's a crazy thing for Pastor Pastor Rod to decide to go and serve in the United States Senate. But I've been focused on these health care issues for years, and so rather than simply fighting for good laws, now I'm able to write them. I'm glad we we're able to cap the cost of insulin. That's awesome. uh, but I'll tell you, Georgia needs to expand Medicaid. We've got 640,000 Georgians. In the health care coverage gap, we're one of only 10 states still digging in our heels. I think that's a mistake. I think well, we did expand Medicaid as of July 1st to certain well, sectors. Yeah, we've we got 600, over 600,000 Georgians. That, that, that's a, 
a, a drop in the bucket, uh, the, the program that, that's being pushed forward uh, right now. And as a result of that, I, in my view, we've, we've seen nearly 10, we've seen 10 hospitals close in a decade. And when you talk about the people in the gap, I think it's important to stress that you really are talking about the working poor. Right. And I want to keep that in mind because these are people who are not poor enough to get Medic, uh, Medicaid, but they can't afford health insurance, as you point out. It's an issue that a lot of people struggle with. They're in the gap, and we have left them in the gap, even though in the American Rescue Plan, I was able to convince my caucus uh, to put in the bill additional sweeteners to make it even more attractive for Georgia to expand uh, Medicaid. And when I say expand, we're not talking about a new program. We're saying give Georgians access to the money they're already spending in their in their taxes. Uh, our refusing to expand Medicaid doesn't get that money back into the pockets of Georgians. That just means they're subsidizing health care in other states while their hospitals are closing, mostly in rural areas throughout Georgia. And uh, working people don't have a floor to get basic health care, which I believe as a pastor is a human right. Well, this was something that I was wanting to talk to you about, and I'm glad you brought it up. And thank you so much for the hard work that you've already put in. I'm one of those those persons, those people you're talking about as far as uh, that need insulin. Uh, and that's on, you know, um, med- medicines, different types of medicines. And that was some of the medicines we were looking at. Just one of my medicines was $600, mm-hmm. just one. And we were like, Lord, how in the world? And... But then there were programs that have just come out that we didn't know anything about that helped us get them. And we was like, wow, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. It's a lot of us out there that are that are not able to afford insurance. Martha and I have talked about this. My wife, we've talked, you know, that's not able to afford a house payment for insurance. And just to get what we thought was insurance, which, you know, here it is over $400 a month, and we still so, don't have so, anything. So here's why I've focused on, on insulin. You say, well, that, you know, diabetes is one disease. But $1 out of $4 in our health care system is spent on people with diabetes. $1 out of 4 in our health care system spent on people with diabetes. So if we can get some control over this, not only will it help people like Pastor Rod and others, I think it will help to to impact the overall cost of our health care system. Insulin's been around 100 years, a century. And when it was invented, the patent was sold for $1. There's no reason for insulin to be expensive. It's expensive because too often uh, in Washington, D.C., it's the moneyed interest. It's people who are well-connected and well-financed who get their way. And what we saw on this insulin fight is that as I and and others began engaged on this issue in the public sector, it did also impact the private sector. So we are starting to see insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies cap the cost of their insulin. And so I think that's that dance between the public and the private, but we have to center the concerns of ordinary people. I, I had a woman who was my guest at the state of the union address and she, as a graduate student, literally spent hours and hours on Facebook and on social media connecting with strangers in dimly lit parking lots to get not illegal drugs, but insulin, rationing insulin, people passing on insulin from dead relatives 
If you need insulin, you need insulin. And I have seen up close as a pastor the impact of unmanaged diabetes, the amputations, the kidney failure, having to go on dialysis, the leading cause of uh, of blindness. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm deeply honored that I get to represent all Georgians on this and so many. Well, and you go back to even the results of COVID. I mean, if you look at the impact diabetes had on your ability to survive COVID, it was one of the biggest factors. So it was a huge issue. And one thing you and I might agree on is that um, my big problem with I don't I'm not one of these big pharma people. I'm not anti pharmaceutical companies. I think they've done great work. My problem with the pharmaceutical companies is they now pay more on advertising than they do on research and development. I can defend them when they're spending the money on research and development because, do you know what I mean? Because we are the last market left where we don't have fixed prices. And so I understand that from a capitalist standpoint. What bothers me is it's not they're spending so much money on research and development. They are, but more on advertising. Yeah, I mean, they're literally advertising drug. I mean, we we all see these ads. Yes. Yes. And they're telling you to ask your doctor to ask about a drug. Yeah, I mean, my husband's an old primary care physician. He's, yeah. he, he is now, he's retired from his practice, but he does the, he's the jail doc at Hall County. And it's a real mission mm-hmm. because a lot of these folks have never seen a doctor before. And he's he's done that. But, I mean, he's very old school about that kind of stuff, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about, you said we can fix the mother mortality rate as well as infant mortality rate. How can we do that? How can government do that? Well, look, it's the reason why I work with Marco Rubio on this issue, because, you know, regardless of your politics, this is something that we all ought to be able to agree on and work on. So I have introduced something called the Kira Johnson Act. It's named after a black woman, and I I want to encourage your readers to just Google her name, Kira, K-I-R-A, Johnson Act. And while it shouldn't matter, because because it's a human being, a child of God, this is a well-traveled, well-educated woman um, who had a very vibrant life, very healthy, and 12 hours after she gave birth to her son, she died in a hospital begging uh, for for care, asking them to respond. 12 hours later, she literally just died, bled to death in the hospital. And what we've seen, you can't, you know, what you, what we have seen is that there is clearly implicit bias, and I know some folks don't want to hear that, but you, you, you've got to respect the data. Black women are three to four times more likely to die than their white sisters, even when they have the insurance. So it's not just a class issue, even when they have the income. And so Marco Rubio and I have, have gotten together. We don't agree on a whole range of things uh, to say, well, we can't. We can't countenance this kind of bias. Uh, these maternal mortality rates for women in general in states like Georgia are criminally high. They're especially acute for uh, African-American women. And so my bill, the Kira Johnson Act, uh, supports grassroots organizations that are responding to this while also uh, investing in the kind of research and bias training that we need so that women don't have to feel like when they're going into the hospital to have a baby, they've got one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel. Um. We have one question. We had one question that came in from a caller related to immigration. What is your view on the level of illegal immigration that's coming in right now and what we need to do about it? We have to secure the the border and we have to give people a dignified uh, path to citizenship. 
we are the land of immigrants. America is great, not in spite of its diversity, but because of it. And uh, I think that it is unfortunate that uh, this issue gets politicized. But I'll tell you, as I move across Georgia, as I move across North Georgia, and I talk to uh, leaders in business, they know that we've got to get our act together uh, on immigration. When you talk about uh, labor, the labor force, the jobs that need to be uh, filled, the people who come here to get educated, then we send them back with all of their training. Um, We need to get our arms around this, and I think there's a common-sense path. And I think the reason we haven't done it it's not because it's so complicated. It's the politics. Mm. It's the politics. And it's a strange thing for somebody to say who's in office. But it's the reason why I'm not in love with politics. I tolerate no, politics I mean, in order to do good work. I mean, it is one of the biggest problems, I think, with politics today is the fact that you have these caucuses. Okay? And you're, you were elected, I, I don't remember what it was, 51, 49, 52, 48, something like that. So... You, you're not going to be 100% with your caucus. But I bet, and I don't, I don't want to say what's been said to you, but I know other senator friends of mine have said, you get called into a room. If you don't toe the line, we're not going to help you get reelected. And I know it happens on the Republican side. I bet it happens on the Democrat side, too. And we got to get past that and try to do more together. And I believe we can. I'm an eternal optimist. I believe conservative values are the best for this country, but I also believe that we can work together on things as children of God. I'm proud of the fact that I'm the 18th most bipartisan center in the Senate, according to um, um, an institute that, that named an honor of a, a former Republican senator. So uh, I've tried to focus on the things that we can agree on, which I've worked which is why I've worked with Republicans to do everything from helping Georgia farmers get their products to market to trying to cap the cost of insulin. And had the best commercials ever. You could say Christmas lights and puppies, and people know you're talking about Raphael Warnock. Even though you let that dog lead you a little bit in that one ad. Well, I thought that was was brilliant. I was like, Lord, don't let the dog trip him up. Reverend Senator Warnock, thank you so much for being with us today. We have a whole list of questions we wanted to get to today, but we had limited time today. But we'd love for you to come back and do a town hall with us. We would love that. I I, I will do it. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining us right now is Labor Commissioner Bruce Thompson. And when Bruce Thompson asked for your vote and then was elected, he said he was going to audit the Department of Labor and that he was going to run it like a business. And he's discovered some things and he's going to tell us about it today. Bruce, welcome to the program. Good morning, Martha. How are you? Good. So tell us, uh, you know, tell us about this audit and what you found. Well, sure. Just like what you just said, when you come into a new opportunity, you look at the books, you look at the cash flow, you look at the assets and the revenue streams to try and determine how you're going to accomplish your mission. And we started looking uh, after uh, being presented with a a little bit of money that was somewhere that uh, didn't make a lot of sense. We did an internal investigation with our legal team, uncovered significant uh, ambiguous funds, brought in our state auditor, and um, we discovered $105 million that was meticulously moved around in the Department of Labor that should have been transmitted to the state treasury. Started in 2014, um, and it continued all the way up until I had it transmitted last Friday. Wow. So where did this money come from? 
So uh, in uh, when when employers pay their premium fund, they pay for the employers. They pay it quarterly. They file it quarterly. The state allowed what we call the administrative assessment fee, which means if let's just say you pay in thousand dollars, there was a very small piece that could be identified that when it went over to the state treasury, it would be returned back for operational expenses. And in the report, uh, because the, the state auditors are interim report to us, it details that uh, the previous administration was frustrated by not getting the appropriations they wanted, so they decided to only submit a portion of that and keep some for themselves. Then when an employer does not file in a timely manner, there are penalties and interest on that. That, they kept all of it. And um, they commingled the three funds together. They hid it in the trust fund. So until the time during 2020 when the trust fund was being depleted because of COVID, uh, they moved it out of there for fear it looked like apparently that they were concerned that it would be utilized for paying out benefits and moved it over into a non-interest-bearing account, which for $679, the people of Georgia lost out on interest on that money. So millions of dollars in lost interest as well. So what is going to happen with this? I mean, is this criminal, well, what was done? Is this, I mean, what will happen next? Sure, it's an ongoing investigation. Um, listen, this is not political to me. Uh, this is exactly what I campaigned on. It's what I do. Um, and uh, the decisions will be with other agencies on what happens. But we're far from the end of this. There's a lot to be investigated. There are a lot of questions that are still unanswered. There are the detail of transactions were being done on an Excel paper spreadsheet. So, uh, yeah, a lot of questions. So will will this money have to be given back to the state? Is it owed to the state? And again, the Department of Labor is a part of the state. But does it does this money have to be moved out of the Department of Labor? Well, constitutionally, all agencies are required to transmit funds uh, or monies that it collects. And so it was required constitutionally to be sent over in a timely manner, which outlines monthly. And we did not do that. We submitted some, kept some for ourselves. Um, and when we got to the point where we're getting close to the end of the fiscal year, which would have been last Friday, we transmitted that money over to the straight treasury where it belonged. And um, we'll continue to do that in accordance with the constitution on a regular basis while we investigate this. And what, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've got some staff that is from the previous administration. Are, have you been able to determine who, if anybody, is still working there that made some of these decisions? Well, I would tell you the people of the Department of Labor, uh, the employees that have been here, are great people. They work tirelessly trying to make sure that people got the benefits uh, and the service they needed through the pandemic and in other times. This seemed to be an orchestrated effort at the top. So the rank and file and the hardworking people that are in career centers and at headquarters, most of them had no idea. But um, certainly during an investigatory period, um, it will be able to vet out those if any others are involved. Um, But I feel very confident with the people around me right now that uh, they believe in what I believe, and that is let's run transparent government like the oath that I took uh, when I became a constitutional officer. This is going to be a transparent agency moving forward. We're going to do the right thing. And um, along with the General Assembly and the executive branch, we're confident that modernization 
and investment in this will prevent this from ever happening again. Bruce Thompson, Labor Commissioner, thank you so much for being with me today. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining us on the phone is Representative Barry Loudermilk. And Barry is one of my favorite people because he doesn't search for the limelight. He gets the work done. And when he speaks about something, uh, I pay attention because he uh, he doesn't grab the microphone every time something is happening. Barry Loudermilk, how are you? Martha, it's good to be with you. Good to talk to you. And I'm sure there's people that want you to do more of that grabbing the microphone, right? But I love the fact that you are thoughtful, you think about things, and you don't get involved in a media. You're working all the time, but you're not out there trying to grab the limelight, and I like that. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. It is a challenge these days because, uh, you know, in today's environment, uh, Political success is often measured by volume versus achievement. And so, but on that note, I actually had uh, uh, my friend uh, Thomas Massey, um, who is uh, on Jim Jordan's uh, weaponization committee, and he he complimented us on that. He said, look, you guys are getting so much done because you're not running to the media every time that you get one piece of information. He said, the problem we have is we have so many members in the investigation that when we get we get a little tidbit of information. It's a dash to see who can get to the camera first. So tell us about this. What are you doing related to oversight? Because a lot of people don't understand that. How does that work? And then what are your biggest concerns if you've started this process? Well, when it comes to oversight, you know, Congress has given the constitutional responsibility of accountability of the executive branch. And we do that through various oversight committees. We have a, a general government oversight and accountability committee, but we each committee uh, generally has an oversight committee for their jurisdiction. The exception to that until this year was the House Administration Committee. Our jurisdiction is Capitol Hill and federal elections. I mean, if it's a Capitol Hill jurisdiction includes uh, Capitol Police, the Library of Congress, Smithsonian's, uh, the Botanic Gardens, the operations of the House and the Senate, the, you know, the construction. I mean, everything uh, dealing with Capitol Hill is in our jurisdiction. Um, this is the one committee that until this year never had an oversight subcommittee. It was always a generally s- a smaller committee. So uh, the speaker... Uh, this time decided that we needed to have an, uh, an oversight subcommittee, which uh, I had advocated for as well as some others. And uh, he appointed me chairman of that oversight subcommittee. And he personally, when he, he brought me in to talk about it, he said, the two things that I want you to have your focus on is looking into the security failure of January 6th, because the select committee never did that. They they were supposed to. They never looked at the security failure itself. All of their focus was on tying Donald Trump to the attack on the Capitol. Um, and he said the other aspect is looking into the January 6th select committee and how they operated, because they had a huge budget, $18.5 million, and all that they produced was basis, basically a manifesto against Donald Trump and Republicans. And so uh, that... That is where our focus has been. And, of course, our key focus has been on the security failure at the Capitol. But that has also catapulted us into looking at the 
so-called evidence the January 6th committee collected and was supposed to hand over to us. So I've heard this number that there was supposedly four gigabytes or whatever of data and all you really got was 2.4. So how is that process gone? Um, Because you're missing a lot of the data. And what really piqued my interest was there were a lot of these interviews, these depositions that were used in the hearings that were televised, but the whole interviews were not made available to you. Correct. So when, uh, as the January 6th select committee was coming to its end at the end of the last Congress, um, this, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who was going to presumably be speaker, as well as our ranking Republican on House administration, sent letters to the committee reemphasizing um, the House rules and uh, basically saying you have to keep everything. It has to be archived. You have to preserve everything. And it will be handed over to the House Administration Committee. So that process is they have to preserve it. They turn it over to the House clerk, and then the clerk hands it to us. So when I took the reins, we finally got all the the information. What we expected was to receive a database and some hard copies. Because all these committees that do investigations, you get these databases to where everything is put into the, um, the, the database. And so your work is done on computer. Even though you have printed documents, you have depositions and subpoenas, all that stuff is digitized. And all of your communications, everything is handled through that database. So we expected to get a database. We didn't get that. We got about 2 million printed pages of information and about two, little more than two terabytes of digital information. Most of that digital information was just digital copies, PDFs, if you will, of the printed documents. There were a few videos of uh, some body cam footage, basically it, some of the stuff that they used in their Hollywood production hearings. Did they deliver 2 million pages to you? Yes, we had about 2 million printed pages. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, <laughs> and so nothing was indexed. There was no table of contents. It was boxes full of stuff. So obviously it takes us a while to go through to figure out what we have. As we're going, we're figuring out, look, we've got a lot of stuff, but there's information we don't have. So the select committee was broken up into three teams. You had a red team, a green team, and a blue team. Red team's goal, they were to look at tying Donald Trump to the attack on the Capitol. Well, their, their goal was to investigate that. Their mission was to tie him to it. That's what they wanted to do. That's the narrative they wanted. Green team was looking at the money who funded all this. The blue team was supposed to be looking at the actual security failure of the Capitol. Well, we start realizing we don't have anything from the blue team. There's nothing. It's like the blue team didn't exist. We didn't have anything from the green team. A lot of information for the red team. But then we started realizing after an attorney called me and said, look, uh, because we're giving access to defense attorneys to this information because they're they should be able to have access to, to defend their their clients. And so they're looking for the actual video recording of the deposition that they did. We had copies of the deposition, but we didn't have video recordings. And the, the committee actually videotaped every de, de, uh, deposition and interview. Um, well, we don't have any of that, but they were supposed to preserve that because 
they actually used clips of some of those interviews and depositions in the hearings. And anything that you use that you advance by the committee has to be preserved. So we're missing that. We're missing blue team information. Then we happen to come across a couple of letters. The, we did not have these letters. These letters were not preserved and given to us. We found them through another source, and it was letters from the chair of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, to White House and the Department of Homeland Security, letters saying, we're sending you documents. We're returning documents to you. So they actually physically took documents we were supposed to, to keep and sent them to the, the Biden administration. That was against, I mean, that's in violation as well. So we know that there's nothing from Blue Team. We have these documents that have been sent to the White House and Homeland Security and the video depositions. We know that that's documents that were supposed to be handed over to us that we don't have. But we still don't know the, the entirety of what information that they may have sent to other places. So what's next, Barry? How are we going to move forward on this? Well, I've, I've communicated with uh, Chairman Thompson. I sent him a letter uh, several weeks ago outlining what we knew we didn't have, asking him where they are, why didn't you keep them, why didn't we get them? And he basically wrote back and summarizing is, we didn't have to, and we determined what we wanted to pass along to you. So um, we gave them plenty of opportunity to work with us. They didn't, so we went, we went public with it, that they were missing this. We're hoping that this will bring some more people well, uh, I think what's us. ironic We're, about this is we've got a big controversy related to documents that former President Trump kept, for documents that Mike Pence kept, documents that President Biden kept. And that, in one case, has led to some charges. And these other two, we don't know yet what's going to happen. But that's about separating documents out, not handling documents in the appropriate way. This sounds right. like a case like that on steroids, where there was a whole bunch of documents. It's recent. It's not like they're 10 years old and you don't know where they are. It's a recent thing, and they still don't have all the documents together. And look, yeah. if you're going to make the kind of allegations that the January 6th committee made, then you ought to have the documentation to back it up. Exactly. And we do know now that even since the article ran, we know now that uh, there were some documents that were requested by the Department of Justice. So we're asking the Department of Justice what documents were sent to you to see if, you know, maybe it could be documents we have copies of. We don't know. But we've, I've already sent um, requests, uh, or I would say more demands to the White House and Homeland Security to, to return all of the documents that they received. Um, as far as holding people accountable, yes, they need to be held accountable. My priority right now, though, is getting the information um, because the severity of whatever punitive action we take could be determined on what the type of documents are. And, you know, if they selectively took documents that could exonerate people who have been indicted or uh, the president or whatever, and those are the documents they sent away, then there's probably a lot more punishment in line than if it was just, you know, videotapes of deposition. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. 
Welcome back to the Martha Zoller Show. It is always great to talk to Congressman Dan Crenshaw. It's been a while, but we're really glad to have him back. How are you, Dan? Hey, I'm doing great. No, thanks for having me. Sure. It is so wonderful. I really I got into your podcast about three months ago, and I have to tell you, it's one of the best things I've listened to in a really long time. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, put a lot of work into that. And uh, kind of, we got about 300 episodes. It's one of the things I actually really enjoy doing still. Uh, we always have some expert on talking about whatever subject and you, know, you learn a lot. So, and I learn a lot when I do it. So I, yeah, I love doing it. Thanks for saying that. Well, it's in depth. I mean, it was, I started trying to book you to get you back on again uh, when I started listening to it. So I was going to talk to you about healthcare. I was going to talk to you about uh, all kinds of issues, but this week we're going to talk more about border security because I know you've just been tapped uh, to on a congressional task force to help combat the Mexican uh, drug cartels. And, you know, we're kind of in this world of 21st century slavery. We've got fentanyl coming across the border at levels that we've never seen. We've got um, people that are either being trafficked for labor or trafficked for sex, and it's really a lot like slavery because they're never going to be able to pay the money back. This has gotten so out of hand so quickly. Now, I know you're from Texas. You've dealt with these issues for a long time. And obviously, I live in Gainesville, Georgia, where we've had immigration issues for a very long time. But tell me about this task force, and then how can we get a handle on this? Yeah, so, the, you know, the, the task force came out of our border security bill because our, you know, our border security bill that we passed in the House, H.R. 2, didn't deal with the cartels, right? It dealt with border security, you know, if, if Democrats would make that law, of course they won't, uh, our border problems would be in a much better place, right? It was, it was good legislation to that effect, but it didn't deal with the cartels. Now, these are related issues, but they're not the same. And so the task force was meant to really research and investigate what the problems are, what the vulnerabilities of the cartels are, and what kind of legislation we might push forward to combat them properly. With, with, with a real focus on fentanyl, uh, because that's what's killing 80,000 Americans a year. It's, 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 it's new, right? The cartel issue is not new. Okay, major cartels, whether they're from Colombia or Mexico, have been around, you know, in strength since the 90s. But what is new is their trafficking of fentanyl. And it is a problem we can solve because only a couple cartels really do it. Uh, it is a problem we can solve, but we have to be willing to do it. We've got to get the policy right. And so that, that's the point of the task force. And, you know, we'll be taking trips down to Mexico, down to Colombia. I've already been on those trips myself. Uh, we'll be bringing in experts and we're going to come up with the right policy solutions, hopefully in a bipartisan way. Because none of this works if it's not bipartisan. You know, it's really popular for a lot of Republicans to get up and make a lot of noise and talk about all the demands they're going to make. None of it really matters because and you, you, you've only have, you only have the House. Right? You don't have the Senate. You don't have the presidency. So if you're not smart about this stuff um, and you don't actually create a strategy where you can make some change, then I would argue you don't really care. You might care about getting people's attention, but you don't really care about the issues. So if we really care, we've got to actually um, make this bipartisan. And that's what I'm trying to do. Give every, you know, Democrats maybe won't play along. We'll see. But you've got to try. Well, you know, it won't matter otherwise. In Georgia, of course, in after the 2020 election and runoff, we ended up with two Democratic senators, which we hadn't had in a very long time. And, um, 
you know, we could get into the whole issue around that of people not getting back out and voting for the runoff and all of the other things that went along with that. But looking back doesn't help. Only looking forward does. But both of those senators, Ossoff and Warnock, have said we must secure our border, that we cannot fix this problem without securing the border. I had Democrats on my program today that said we have to secure the border. I've heard Democrat congressmen, some of your colleagues, talking about how they're going to lose seats in New York and other states because this border issue, whether you like what Greg Abbott did or not, he showed the rest of the country what the problem was by sending some of these illegal immigrants to other cities, these sanctuary cities. Because it's easy to say you're a sanctuary city when you're not dealing with the problem. And so we've got a big issue, but I think there's a window of opportunity to have a bipartisan movement on this. I just don't know how to get there. That's why I focus on cartels. Because uh, like, I think Democrats say they want border security, but what they really mean is they, uh, they, 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 they want less chaos at the border. That's what they want. And, you know, like we're, we're, we're real, we're still real far, far apart from each other when it comes to, you know, reforming our asylum laws, they get taken advantage of and all that. Um, Democrats basically want to shift a lot of the illegal immigration into legal immigration. So, you know, I always take what they say with a grain of salt and it's hard, hard to find common ground there, but on cartels and on the fentanyl issue, I think there's more common ground. So that's the purpose behind the cartel task force. We keep it focused on a national security issue. Um, and and if it's a foreign policy issue, really, you know, because you've got the, the, the country of Mexico being overwhelmed by cartels. It's, it's, there's many states in Mexico, um, almost half, really, uh, is by our assessments, are fully controlled by cartel members or cartel money. No, it's it's a real problem. You, you, that can't you, we cannot have that one. They're one of our closest trading partners, closest allies, closest neighbor in the region. I mean, you just you, you just can't have a failed state on your hands. So it's a foreign policy, national security issue, and it's got to be bipartisan. You're a veteran. Um, I'm the daughter of a POW. Uh, I you know I have members of my family that are serving in the Navy now. Um, I you know I know you're working hard on. Uh, PTSD and how to treat that and some things that that were recently adopted into the NDAA. And this is a, a real important issue to me. My, my dad drank all his life. Okay, that's how he dealt with his PTSD. He was a functioning alcoholic, never missed a day of work, but you didn't really want to be around him at 8 o'clock at night. He thankfully dealt with his issues finally in his 70s. And we had the last 10 years of his life where it wasn't ever bad. You know what I mean, Dan? He was a great father. Yeah. He just had some demons that he never yeah. was able to deal with. And um, and I'm thankful now that I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of soldiers, especially since uh, the global war on terror. I traveled to Iraq twice. I, I've done, I've raised money. I've, I've tried to be as involved as I can. And I understand my father so much better, which I'm so thankful for. So, yeah. Um, tell me about that. So what we're, what we were working on on the NDAA, which is our, you know, our annual military spending bill, um, was, was putting in there that they have to do clinical trials on certain psychedelics for treatment of PTSD and, and traumatic brain injuries. Now, why? Uh, because what we've seen um, in some studies and in a lot of testimony from veterans who have, who have, who have gone to these clinics just outside the country, is major, major um, positive outcomes uh, 
from these from these therapies. You know, one day of therapy, completely changing their life, uh, saving their marriage, stopping them from killing themselves, immediately stopping their drug addiction or alcohol addiction. I mean, immediately. It, it's real. I mean, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't really believe. I mean, you got to got to talk to these people to believe it, really. Um, and so, you know, this 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 legislation would simply say, look, you. It's time for the Department of Defense to allow active duty service members to become part of these clinical trials. Let's study this. Let's understand it, and, and let's apply it because it's, it's already saved lives. But there's still that stigma attached to it. It's not widely available. Um, you know, it hasn't gone through the the proper uh, research and clinical trials. So let's do it. Let's actually do it. No, I think it's the right thing to do. My husband's a primary care physician. He's been saying for years that we need to put these drugs in a classification that we can study them so that we can know right. what they do and what they don't do because exactly. he don't want to go out on a limb and prescribe something he doesn't know how it works, right? And you can't legally do right. it anyway, but you still want to know what the repercussions are and it makes perfect sense. So I appreciate you doing that. One final question I just want to ask you is, and it's my pet peeve, it's the budget, okay? We just can't seem to pass a budget on time. It doesn't look like we're going to for a while, um, it seems to me, I had an interview with, with John Lewis, the late, um, the late congressman a number of years ago. And I said, you know, John, we might pick 20 things we could cut in the budget and maybe we'd only agree on three of them, but why can't we start there? When are we going to get the budget process back on track? Well, it depends on what kind of budget process you want. You know, we could, we could have a whole semester on, uh, on on budget process and there are indeed classes that study it for a whole semester in the history of it and, you know, why, why, is, why, why is it why is it the way it is you know, why are there 12 appropriations still why I mean we kind of just kind of just came out that way okay so um, you know they're based on subject matter so what we've promised to do in the house is pass 12 separate appropriations bills okay so we'll do that I think I mean we'll probably have a government shutdown uh, in the process, you know, because there'll be a lot of fighting about it. That's okay. That's how that's how politics is, and that's how legislation gets made, right? That kind of give and take. That'll go to the Senate, and then they'll put it all into one because they'll have to negotiate it themselves as well. And as they negotiate it themselves, they take some things out of one appropriations bill in exchange for some changes in another appropriations bill. And that's how you get the big one. That's how you get the big appropriations bill, the omnibus that everybody just hates. But I tell you what, that's probably what the Senate's going to give us. And so that's, and, and they're going to say vote on it. And it will be based upon the 12 appropriations bills that we pass to them. But that's why it happens that way. I think there's way too much misinformation about like how the process works. And, you know, people are mad. They're not even sure why they're mad. Um, <laughs> is it too much? Yeah, it's too much. But, you know, the stuff we got to take out, you don't want to take out, right? Because it's entitlements and stuff that you like. But that's where most of the money is. So there's, it's a longer conversation, as you know. Um, for, for, those, for those of you out there who are really well informed about this stuff, you know how complicated it is. And then, you know, we get into these big fights over what amounts to almost a, you know, a tiny percentage of the entire budget. People make big, you know, die on those hills to make themselves look cool and get, grab a headline or two. And that's what's all going to happen this year, just like it happens every year as we go through it. Um, if you really, if you, the only way to really get a hold on our spending, you, you've got to look at the major spending programs. And almost 70% of all spending comes from just a few programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then our interest on the debt. So 
until people start talking about that, which no one will talk about, you know, you're, you're going to get you're going to get large, large deficits every single year. That's just the truth. Yeah, that's what you do, Dan Crenshaw. You tell the truth. And I appreciate you being with us uh, today. And that's why I have followed you since you got into Congress. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I was happy to be on the program. Thanks for having me. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.